0: Y'all give it up for, for Caitlin. Thank you so much. A lot of clapping this evening already. It's been great. Hey, well, if you're new to Salt Company, uh, my name's Rudy. This is a great time to be here. We're starting a new collection of talks, a new message series tonight called uh, What is God Like? What is God Like? So we're going to spend the next few weeks kind of around this topic. Um, and as I was thinking about it, it reminded me of a story from when I was in uh, my junior year of college forever ago, decades, no, a decade ago. Uh, I, I was a junior in college, and uh, my friends and I were part of this college ministry, and we were doing this, we were basically like running outreach as students kind of on our, our campus. And so we had this idea, like, how could we like meet some people out on campus? And so uh, we, we built this eight-by-eight-foot structure <laughs> that was like basically a ch- giant chalkboard that we would take around campus and we would have these little questions on it, right? And th- the questions would range from anything from like uh, really like vague and 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 whatever that, questions like uh, favorite ice cream or whatever, best wings in town or wh- whatever, like, like questions like that to just get to know people. A- and, and then we'd have questions that were a little deeper that were like, hey, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? Uh, if you were to use one word this is, I remember this one if it, we had if you were to just use one word to describe God what would that one word be and I remember I remember meeting a guy while we were doing this whose name was Andrew and I remember talking with Andrew and he, he wrote I don't remember what his one word is I could have made something up but that's like lying which doesn't make any sense because we're the the Jesus thing, um, right? Uh, so, so I remember, like he, he he wrote this one word down, and I remember we're just talking with him, and it's like all of a sudden, it's like he woke up in the middle of this conversation. I don't know how to describe it other than this. And he like stepped back and he pointed at us, and he was like, "How can any of you believe in a God that doesn't care about the world?" Yeah, and it was like that. It was like that. It was like ah, uh, what? And I remember just like blinking and taking a breath and looking at, looking at him and saying, I don't. And he said, you don't believe in God? And I said, no, I believe in God. I just don't believe in a God that doesn't care about the world. I think about that conversation uh, from time to time. It, it just crosses my, my mind. Andrew and I, we used the same word, right? We were both talking. We, we, we used the same word. We both said God, but we meant entirely different things I mean perhaps Andrew had been around people who called themselves Christians and claimed to believe in a God but made it clear by the way that they lived their lives that they didn't care about their neighbors or the world and his assumption was that if people who claimed to know God didn't care about their neighbors or the world then God didn't care about their neighbors or the world either I'm not sure that could be why but I remember this conversation still 10 years later Because at the core of it, Andrew and I disagreed on the question that we're going to be taking time to answer these next few weeks. What is God like? I think this question is massively uh, important. An author by the name of A.W. Tozer once wrote, uh, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The poet William Blake said it like this. He said that we become what we behold, which is to say that we become like what we worship most. What we value the most, what we behold, what we worship, the, the, the God, the, our picture of God is what will most fully and deeply form us. So what is the God that we worship like? Before we jump in and like start just throwing answers at the wall, I actually, what I want us to do this next couple of weeks is kind of step back and actually let God answer that question for himself, which is precisely what he does in Exodus Chapter 34, verses six through seven. I know you just heard them. We're gonna read them again because if the word doesn't do the work, then the work won't get done. The Lord passed before him. Him, by the way, here is Moses. We'll give you a little more context as we get into and through this series. The Lord passed before him Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love uh, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What is God like? God answers that question himself. And we're going to dive into it over the next few weeks, and we're going to dive into all of it, by the way, including that last little bit at the end with the fathers and the children that you could get like, what the heck is going on there? We're going to get into it, right? Uh, we're going to get into what that actually uh, means. Hang in with us as we get into what, what is God like. And we're going to start at the beginning with uh, what frames this entire description of what God is like when he starts with these two words in English, which is actually one word in the original language, and he says, the Lord. The Lord. What is God like? God is like, he's the Lord. Now, in, in English, this reads to us like like a title, right? That's the translative decision that's been made here. Uh, totally makes sense. We hear, uh, however, Lord, and we think like Star Wars, right? Darth Vader, that's a title. Or you think of like the whatever masterpiece classic you're binging right now to fall asleep to like nice British accents at night or whatever, like Lord Duke of Downton Abbey or whatever the heck it is. Or I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know. But it's, it's interesting because in the original language, the word that's used here is is actually not... Not a title. Brief Hebrew lesson. All right. Ready? Lock in. Note takers, I got you. In the original language, the usage of Lord as a title was the Hebrew word Adon or Adonai. And this was intended to ascribe honor or position or power to the, to the recipient of this title. As you read your Bible, most translators have done a really great work to make this clear through the way that Lord is displayed. You can see Lord in some places in your Bible, and it's all L-O-R-D or all lowercase. When they're all lowercase, it's typically talking about a title given to a, a person, a man, a, a woman, a, a position a, a, of power. If it's L-O-R-D and the L is uppercase, it's this idea of the title of Lord, the position, the, the power but it's referring to, to God. It's referring to, to God. Usually it's tagged with another word to add more, more weight and clarity to that for the original here and for us now today. These are captured through the, the root of Adon or Adonai, this title of Lord. And then there's the usage of Lord wherein D are all in capital letters. And the word that's used there is not Adon or Adonai at all. The word that's used there And the word that's used here in Exodus 34 is Yahweh. It's not a title. It's a proper noun. It's God's name. When introducing himself to us, God starts with his name. The Lord, the Lord. Now, in this period of time, and still in, the, the, in the, kind of the, the Eastern context, and even some of the West today, this is kind of resurging as ch- people are naming their children, a name was provided to describe who the person was. Michael Knowles, an academic in the uh, area of Old Testament study, says it like this. He says, in the world of the Hebrew scriptures, a person's name was often thought to indicate something essential about the bearer's identity. Another way to say this is that your name revealed your nature and your nature was seen in your name. And so God here chooses to give us his name. That's where he starts to, to tell us what he is, is like. And in giving us his name, Yahweh, as it's translated, we understand that, he, that he's powerful, right? It's translated as the Lord. But as we dig into this translation of his name, we also see that Yahweh means that he is the Lord, the Lord, he is, he is, he is Yahweh, Yahweh, he is the Lord, the, the Lord. It's all wrapped up in this name. And in giving his name, God is revealing his nature. He is making who he is known to us. He's revealing that he is not only powerful, but He is also personal. He's personal in the sense that he is a relational being, a knowable God, not distant or indifferent or unknowable, but that he chooses to be near and involved and known. So what is God like? Just from this place of starting, just in giving his name, Yahweh, God is revealing to us that he is powerful and he is personal. He's different from us in that he is powerful, but he is not distant from us in that he is personal personal all this simply from God giving us his name and we have to camp here and we're gonna camp here because if we miss one or the other if we miss that he is powerful or we miss that he is personal then we will start on the wrong trajectory of understanding what God is like as we enter into these attributes that we see that follow after as he says the Lord Yahweh he is blank Right? We don't want to start on the wrong trajectory of understanding who God is. You see, in telling us who he is, by giving us his name, God reveals another thing about himself. He reveals that he's consistent. Have you ever, have you ever, have you ever gotten to know somebody? And the more that you got to know that person, the more that you realize that who you thought they were is not actually who they are at all. You know, that's not that's not so far away for people who have been in relationships where they've been hurt or cheated on where they've been betrayed. If that's you, you know what I'm talking about. You don't start a relationship in that way with someone thinking, I can't wait for them to betray me. (laughs) That's weird. I'm super stoked for them to cheat on me. I'm really excited. Like that, right? Started relationships and the way that you thought it was going to go is not the way that it ends up going. You're shocked when it happens because it started one way and it turned out a different way. The word for this is that that person was inconsistent, and this inconsistency, hear me, will never happen with God, because God is saying right here, I am consistent, so as he continues through this description of himself, by giving his name first, and his nature in his name, he's saying that I am, and I will continue to be, So as you read this text, he's saying, I am and I will continue to be compassionate. And I am and I will continue to be gracious. And I am and I will continue to be slow to anger and steadfast in love and truth, uh, extending and enduring that love for a thousand generations. I am and I will continue to be forgiving of iniquity, rebellion, and sin. I am and I will continue to be just. I am and I will always be these things. That's what God's saying as he gives his name and he gives his nature. He's saying along the way, I am and I will continue to be powerful, and personal and if we miss how he's consistent if we miss how he is powerfully and personally consistent in his character then we will miss out on understanding who God is so here's what we have to do here's the work we've got to do around his name we have to avoid falling into two ditches an either or ditch we we have to avoid thinking that he is one and not the other so two ditches we'll start with this first one on one side You've got the ditch of God, of seeing God as powerful, but not personal. He's powerful. He's in control. He oversees everything, uh, and, and, and that's, that's how you see him. But he's not very personal in, in, in your mind, right? Think about people that you know that are like this, powerful people, that we would recognize them as for their accomplishments and for their accolades and for their attributes, but, but not necessarily that they are very personal, You look at them and say, they're they're very powerful, but they don't care about me at all. We'll never be in relationship. They'll never know me. I'll never know them. Why would they know me? I'm just some person. I'm just a man. I'm just a woman. They're powerful and they're indifferent. When we start to view God as powerful but not personal, it becomes very easy for us to slip into thinking of him as cold, indifferent, unfeeling, calloused, and distant. And when that happens, you read about him being compassionate and gracious. And you say, yeah, he, he's powerful enough to be compassionate and gracious, but he's compassionate and gracious over there somewhere else. Yeah, he's slow to anger, but he's slow to anger for other people. He's not going to be slow to anger towards, towards, towards me. Why? He's powerful, but he does not, it's not towards me. Those things all go to a different place. If that happens, I'd submit to you, perhaps your view of God is a little bit more like Star Wars than Scripture. <laughs> you start to think of God uh, as like the force, like this indifferent, impersonal power. Maybe I have it, maybe I don't. I know there's power there, but it's irrelevant because it's impersonal. Or if you're jaded even further, Jesse and I were talking about this earlier, you start to see God like he's described in Bruce Almighty. Anyone remember that? (laughs) Oh right, okay. God's just a kid sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass. You start to think of God as powerful and not personal. He's some immature tyrant, wielding power with no sense of relationship to the people on earth. Maybe, maybe that's how my boy Andrew thought about God. Powerful but impersonal in relation to the world. Some people like Andrew see him like this and walk away completely. Other people see him like this and think they have to work really, really hard to earn his goodwill or to stay under the radar. The, the mentality starts to become if I don't screw up then God's not gonna mess with me it's better for me to like just try to do good so that so that like he just ignores me so I don't get on his radar so he doesn't bring that power down on me better to fly under the radar than to have any kind of relationship with that powerful and impersonal God there are entire offshoots of Christianity that are rooted in reminding their followers that God is powerful but not very personal so they better work really really hard to earn and deserve the grace that that God that they talk about God giving so that they can be pleasing to him there's some traditions where they are becoming what they've beheld as they create power hierarchies and put some people at the top others squarely beneath them and measure obedience to God by obedience to a spiritual leader and to be frank with you all of this really just makes me sad it makes me sad because if we see God as powerful and not personal we actually miss out on the father heart of God This is the way that Jesus introduces God to us uh, as he teaches his followers to pray. That first verse of, of the prayer, that first word of the prayer where Jesus teaches his followers to pray by starting with the word father. And I wanna acknowledge this. Some of you have a relationship with your father where you would say, if God is father, then Rudy, you can keep him. And I wanna let you know that this is a heavenly father, not an earthly father. Where your earthly father may have been imperfect, your heavenly father is perfect. Where your earthly father may have been indifferent towards you, your heavenly father is not. And so we we look at this and we think of God perhaps as indifferent, he's impersonal, when actually he loves us deeply. He loves the world deeply to the point at which he sent his son. We think we bother God when he actually deeply loves us. We think uh, that we bother him when in reality he asks us and desires for us to come to him. We think we're inconvenient for God when actually he invites us into intimacy with him. We, We think we're hopeless failures before God just trying to stay off his radar. And what he actually sees is a child learning to walk with his dad. We think he's impersonal when he's anything but because he's both powerful and personal. And when we see God as powerful but not personal, we are prone to think that God is begrudgingly dutiful in what he does. That the works and acts of God are devoid of love and are purely duty. He does it because he has to do it. He saves because he has to. He's just pure power and pure duty. And if you think, if you have this perspective of God as powerful and not personal, that, that it is purely duty, then I guarantee you over time that you will return duty for duty. You will look at Christianity as something that is driven by duty alone. And that will lead you straight into exhaustion. You can't rest in God because there's always something that you have to be doing. Uh, You might even see people experience joy and delight in following Jesus and look at their joy and delight as a threat because it's not fixated on works that you feel like you have to be doing to earn God's pleasure. When in reality, you're actually just jealous that they're experiencing that freedom of joy because they understand that he's powerful and that he's personal. We look at following Jesus as a duty, as lifeless, as joyless, as delightless because there's a part of us that thinks That God is not very personal, even though he may be powerful. So that's one seam of the ditch we have to avoid. He's powerful, but he's not personal. The other one, I would argue, is just as dangerous. That he is personal, but he is not powerful. That God is personal. Now, when I say that, what I mean is that he's relational. right? He's personable. But what it can become is that God is now private. He's my God. He's not your, he's mine. I get to decide what, what he's like. He's not just personal in that he relates to me. He's personal in that he always a- agrees with me. He's personal, but he's not powerful. Let me, let me say it like this. When I was a child... I would uh, go to the mall in Brandon, Florida. What's up, Westfield? Um, and I would go to the mall in Brandon, Florida with my aunt and uncle. They would invite me to come with them for my birthday because we just had a couple. It was so weird. It's like my family would talk and they'd say, we're gonna get Rudy this. And then someone else in the family would be like, we're gonna give them the same thing. And they'd be like, that's a weird thing. And then it happened like multiple times. I would get like duplicates of gifts. And I was like, this is strange. So my Aunt Kendall and Uncle Danny uh, decided, hey, we're just going to take you to the mall. We're going to tell you how much you can spend and we're going to make a memory. You're going to get what you want and we're going to have a great time. It was awesome. I never took an L with a gift ever again on my birthday. It was sweet. Um, but there was one time I just vividly remember. Um, I know I dated myself with Bruce Almighty. How about Build-A-Bear workshops? Anybody? Oh, whoa, way too much excitement over there. That's not set, set or free. Um, no, I, I'm just kidding. I, uh, I, I remember like like walking into Build-A-Bear Workshop and just seeing what was going on. If you're not familiar with Build-a-Bear workshop, what it is is you you walk in and it's like very bright, very loud. Like I remember being very loud. And you just like pick the base model bear that you want to get. You put like whatever features you want to put on it on it. You you put it in whatever outfit you want to put it in. And then you, there's like an upgrade where you can like press the paw or whatever and like you can record your voice into the bear. So like you can pretend like it's some like it's it's the bear's voice, but you actually know that it's your voice. And what I remember remember thinking is walking in there and like doing the math in my head and being like, this like costs too much. <laughs> like I was just a frugal child, um, right? I, I, I just remember walking out. I was like so overwhelmed. I walked out and I vividly remember going next door, getting like a base like Buzz Lightyear toy and like walking away happy. A story of my youth. All right. Um, I, I think that sometimes that when we approach God as, as personal but not powerful, we functionally will like put ourselves into a build a God workshop. Like I pick out the base model because it's what I think he should be like and I start to add little pieces to him because I think it's what he's supposed to look like and I put little outfits in because it's how he's supposed to present himself and I'll even upgrade it to a little voice box so I can like press his paw and I can hear my own voice coming out of the mouth of this God that I've created that approves everything that I approves and dislikes everything that I dislike and is silent about all the things that I want God to be silent about. And ultimately what what happens is it costs too much because it costs us God. We trade in, as Paul says in the book of Romans, the creator and worship what's created. Let's pull it into the ground. I think you put any politician, and just so I'm clear here, left or right, who is constantly invoking the name of God to support their agenda and and shoving scripture into like bend it to their stump speech, you, you've run into a build a God workshop. Hyper-nationalists, hyper-progressives build a God workshop. I make him into my image rather than being made into his image, build a God workshop. Because I think he's personal, but not so powerful. At least he doesn't have the power to tell me how how to live my life or or much power in my life. Personal, but not powerful. It's the teddy bear God there to hold on a dark night, but ultimately isn't capable of doing anything. When we think of God as personal, but not powerful, we miss out again, on the Father heart of God. See, he's the perfect ideal father and that he knows what is best for us, that God knows the way that leads to life and flourishing. He knows and he makes himself and his way known, which means that he doesn't always let us or approve of the things that we want to do or, or, or let us go and do it. Why? Because if you ran into a father who always let their child do what you they wanted to do, always gave them what they wanted, always let them eat what they wanted to eat, all these different things, always let them play in the street when they wanted to or carry the knife around and run with it whatever like like you would have fun with that dad for a day and then the next day you'd call you'd call child protective services because that dad is unsafe for that child that dad's just not say it's an unloving father a father who actively approves and encourages their kid to be in danger is not good the father who lets the child do whatever they want there's no formation because there's actually no affection that there's, there's no direction because there's no love. God as Father is personal and powerful, and he forms us in a particular and a beautiful way that he leads out, that, that, la- that leads us to freedom and to flourishing and to affection. He's personal and he's powerful. And the question is, will the child see that their father loves them enough to protect them from what might harm them, or will the child look elsewhere for someone who will let them do whatever they want? Powerful but not personal presents a God that is dutiful. Personal but not powerful presents a God that is pitiful. That's not God. It's just us pretending that we have a God while we're doing whatever we want. Again, perhaps this is what Andrew's picture of Christianity was a pitiful God, incapable of doing anything in or through people who were more concerned with what they cared about than with what God cared about because everything that we cared about, that they cared about, or that he saw them care about was their, what their build-a-bear God cared about. Everything else, the world, the poor, righteousness, the gospel, who cares? Maybe that's how Andrew saw God and maybe that's why Andrew resented God. If you're here and you're not a Christian tonight and that's your picture of God and, and you're you're not a Christian, you don't have any affection towards jesus or towards god i'm frankly not surprised why would you have any desire to follow a god who will just approve everything that you want anyways why follow a god who doesn't love you enough to protect you save you form you transform you love you change you in any meaningful way personal but not powerful presents a god who is pitiful and if you keep going back to the build a god workshop don't be surprised if over time you start to resent the god that you've created Powerful but not personal, personal but not powerful. These are the two ditches that God's name, Yahweh, keeps us from falling into because salt, God is not either or, God is both and. God is both powerful and personal. He's personal in that he's relational, intimate and knowable and he's powerful in that he's protective, formational and affectionate. Powerful but not personal results in a picture of God that's dutiful. Personal but not powerful results in a picture of God that is pitiful. But the powerful and personal God, we have a picture of a God who is beautiful. God being fully personal and fully powerful are not at war within him. These things do not fight in him as if one is trying to come out over the other. Rather, they unite together beautifully within them. They're so powerfully, so fully present that you can't see where one ends and the other begins. His personal nature is seen in his power, and his powerful nature is seen through his personableness, his relatability. He is personal, and he is powerful, and when we see him as both, we see him as beautiful. We see it through so many dualities that exemplify the same, the same thing. He is personal and he is powerful. He is gracious and truthful. He is loving and just. He's strong and gentle. He cares and he's in control. And it's in these incredible paradoxes that press us into understanding what God is like. And it's when we start to see him in these ways that we start to see that he is beautiful. And there's few places, really nowhere else, that this pairing is more clearly seen than in Jesus Christ himself. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And check this, the exact imprint of his nature. So Yahweh by his name and nature is fully personal and fully powerful. And Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, we see that perfect imprint of his nature, fully personal and fully powerful. Jesus is personal. He relates to us. Through scripture, we see Jesus sweating like we do, bleeding like we do, crying, eating, walking, living, dying. He is personal in these ways because he was a person, fully man to reach us, but he's also powerful. He rescues us. Through the scripture, we see Jesus doing things that God does, healing, predicting, protecting, saving, resurrecting, ascending, and reigning. He's powerful because he was also fully God to save us, fully man to reach us, fully God to save us, beauty of Christ being personal and powerful is all over scripture. Let's just do a recap, Salt Company, on what we've looked at in the text this year so far. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus looked at the man who was paralyzed, personally talked to him addressed him, looked at him, touched him. And then he healed and forgave him of his sin. Powerful moment between him and this man, personal and powerful. In John 4, Jesus speaks with the woman at the well, personal, and then he tells her that he is the Christ and can satisfy her soul through his coming sacrifice. Powerful. In Matthew chapter four, Jesus says, follow me to the disciples. He walks up to them, personal. And then he tells them that he will make them fishers of men. Powerful. In John, we saw while Jesus hung on the cross, his last words, it is finished. He hung on the cross and he did it himself. He suffered himself. He suffocated on his own blood. He was stabbed in the side. He took the punishment of our weight of sin on himself. He personally did it and then three days later he resurrected and rose he made a way for us to be free from sin and have life with him forever powerfully in Matthew 16 Jesus is personal in his formation of the church when he says I will build my church and powerful enough to sustain it when he says "And the gates of hell will not prevail against it powerful and personal is all over the scripture can I just tell you one of my favorite pictures of this in the entire bible powerful and personal Jesus. It's at the end of the gospel of John. There's this guy, a follower of Jesus, Thomas, and he he doesn't see Jesus as he rises from the grave. He comes back. All the other disciples have seen it, but Thomas doubts and Thomas disbelieves. And then a week later, Jesus shows up and Thomas sees this picture of Jesus that exemplifies in such a beautiful way the personal and powerful nature of Jesus Christ as he sees a resurrected savior with holes in his hands. The holes in his hands, he says, Thomas, come touch my hands. Feel the holes in my hands. Know that I personally am the one who hung on the cross for you. But Thomas, look at my body, my resurrected body. I am the one who did not stay dead for you. I took your sin from you on the cross and I give you new life through my resurrected life. Oh, Saul Company, please never forget that he personally invites us to repent of our sin and follow him and he powerfully saves us as we confess that Jesus is our Savior and Lord. Over and over and over, as you stare at Jesus, you see through him and in him the perfect image, the perfect imprint of the nature of the God whose name is Yahweh, the beauty that God is both personal and powerful, not one or the other. Jesus is personal and powerful, and when we see both, we see his beauty. God is personal and powerful, and when we see both, we see his beauty. So when we see God's beauty, how do we respond? What do we do? Well, let me take you back to Exodus 34 for just a moment, and then I'll take my seat. The interaction between God and Moses, where we have our text from here, is very interesting. Like I said, we'll get into some of that context later. But after hearing the name of God, after seeing the beauty of the personal and powerful God, what what do we do? I think that we do what Moses does. Verses 8 and 9. Check this out. Moses immediately knelt on the ground and worshiped. And he said, my Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us. Even though this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. What do we do when we see the beauty of both, when we see that God is personal and powerful? What do we do when we see that? What's our response? Moses kneels and worships. We kneel and worship. Moses prays to God. We pray to God. Pay attention to what Moses prays for, though. Moses asks for his presence, then he asks for his forgiveness. And this is an incredible picture of how we are to relate to the God who is consistently powerful and personal. We see it in Moses here and all over the life of Jesus. What do you do when you realize that God is personal and powerful? What do you do when you see that he's beautiful in this way? You just just want to be with him. You just want to talk with him. You just want to pray. Like, like Moses, Moses sees God and hears him say, this is who I am. The God that you've been curious, this is what I'm like. And, and, and the first thing that, that he prays for, the first thing that he asks for, he says, he says, God, would you please go with us? Like, please just let us stay in your presence. Please, would you just be with us? That's all that I want. I just don't want to lose this. He, he's relating to God in this way and in this in this personal and powerful moment, Moses is looking at God and saying, I I I just I just everything else can go away. I don't care about it. I just I just don't want to leave your presence. Please let us stay in your presence. If this is who you are, if you're personal and powerful, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving and just please just don't leave us. I just want to be with you. We just want to be with you. Moses also knows that if if he's gonna pray that prayer, if he's gonna ask that God is with him, then there's gonna be things in his life and in the life of his people that are gonna be exposed. There's sin that will be revealed. So he says, please go with us. And then he says, forgive our iniquity and sin. Forgive us of the things that aren't gonna line up. Forgive us of the things that aren't gonna fit in your presence. Forgive us of the sin that doesn't hit the mark with you, God. Forgive us of those things so that we can remain in your presence, so that we can stay with you, so that we can be with you because you're personal and you're powerful. Don't miss this. Moses knew that God was personal, so he could pray to be in his presence. And because Moses knew that God was powerful, he could pray for forgiveness because God would personally be with him in his presence and God would powerfully forgive him as he asked. This is Moses's prayer. How did Moses learn to pray? Moses looked at the beauty of God. He just saw God as powerful and personal and he prayed what he had. The first things that came to mind, God, I'm seeing you as powerful and personal. Here's what I want. I want to be with you and the things that don't line up with you, I want to be forgiven of. That's, that's Moses's response. When he sees God for, for who he is, when he hears the name of God, when he comes to know what God is like, so could what? I wonder what our prayer lives would look like if we opened the Bible, stared at it, and read it, read who God was and spent time with this powerful and personal God. What would our prayer lives be like if we did what the psalmist said and we just took time to gaze on the beauty of the powerful and personal Lord and then just talked with them. I wonder if our prayer wouldn't be so far off from Moses that we wouldn't just be like, God, just be with me. I just wanna be with you. Please just be with me that his response would actually be seen to you in the words of Jesus where he says, I am with you always. God, just be with me. Jesus says, I am with you always. I wonder if our prayer wouldn't be so different than when we ask for forgiveness, that as we're with God, that our sin would be exposed like hot water hitting a teabag. What is in us would come out and we wouldn't try to hide it or run from it or excuse it or explain it away. But we just come to the beautiful, powerful, personal God who knows it all already. And we'd say, God, forgive me of my sin. And he would say through Christ, I am willing. Your sin is forgiven. It's the powerful and personal God. We see both, we see his beauty. I wanna ask you just to take a moment to close your eyes and bow your heads just for some focus and and concentration. What is God like? He, He gives us his name, he's Yahweh. He's powerful and he's personal. As powerful as you think he is, he is at least that personal. As personal as you think he is, he is at least that powerful, but he actually exceeds the limits of your comprehensibility of how powerful or how personal he is, but he is fully both. Christ is the reflection of his personal and powerful nature. And in this, we see that he's beautiful and we're drawn to him to be with him. And as we're drawn to him to be with him, our sin is exposed and we come and we say, God, forgive us, and he does. So maybe there's a few ways you need to respond tonight. Maybe maybe there's a little bit of you that is like, man, I, I am definitely seeing God as more powerful than personal or more personal than powerful. There's some part that is living in the build a God workshop. There's some part even that feels like Andrew. I wonder if your prayer tonight might just be God, help me to know you for who you are. Help me to know you as Yahweh. Help me to know your name. You're powerful and that you're personal. For some of you, you know that he's powerful and you're personal, but there's things in your life that feel like keep you away from him, from coming to him. And I wanna invite you to just drop the pretense and drop the pride and just come just to look at him as powerful and personal and to have the same response as Moses, just to kneel and to worship and to pray and say, God, I just want to be with you and God forgive me of my sins. And then there's some of you, you're here, but you're not a Christian, I want you to take this time to consider the reality that there is a resurrected Savior with nail-pierced hands who looks at you and says, I have personally and powerfully made a way for you to have life forever with me. And that you would put your trust in Jesus even tonight. You wouldn't wait anymore, you wouldn't play games, but you'd say, I'm gonna put my trust in Jesus. I'm gonna trust him as my Savior, I'm gonna trust him as my Lord. Take a few moments, however you need to respond. In about a minute, I'll come back up and pray. God, we, um, we acknowledge you as Lord. You're powerful. Beyond measure, you're so powerful. And you're personal. You're so personal. God, it makes me uncomfortable sometimes how, how known you've made yourself. God, help us where we, where we lack. Help us where we disbelieve. Help our unbelief. Help us to look to you and to know you, you are so powerful, you're so personal. Jesus, where we falter, where we doubt, would we just see you? Will we be captured by your beauty? God, even here as we sing, God, would it would would we just wanna, wanna be in your presence? Even as we sing, God, would you expose things in us that are not of you as we're close to you and in your presence, knowing that you're powerful to forgive and personal, Care and to love and to to draw those things out because you have a better way for us. God, as those things rise to the top even now, would you would you forgive us of our sin? God, we trust you. We love you. We worship you. Holy Spirit, come. And meet us here. It's in your name.